Hello, I'm Hyun Sung-kang and welcome to our regular look at the international financial system provided by the IMF. Today on the menu, global trade. Collapsing global demand has triggered the biggest drop in world trade since the Second World War, a reflection of the worst recession in more than half a century. Two of the areas hardest hit by shrinking trade have been the Asia-Pacific region and sub-Saharan Africa. It's well known that Asia relies heavily on exports to drive its growth, and while sub-Saharan Africa may not come close in terms of trade volume, like many developing countries, it depends more than average on trade and commodity exports, and so is more vulnerable when demand contracts. Joining me to discuss patterns of trade over the last year and prospects for the future are Tom Dorsey, who's been working on trade and trade finance for many years with the IMF, Kalpana Kocha of the Fund's Asia-Pacific Department and Paolo Drummond of the Africa Department. Let's begin with you, Tom Dorsey. What's been the pattern of global trade over the last year? Well, in particular, over the last few months, the pattern's been uh, very uniformly down. Exports uh, of all regions are shrinking. Um, Central and Eastern Europe, uh, East Asia, and Latin America have been particularly hard hit. But no region of the world has been immune. Uh, exports are declining by, by fairly significant amounts, uh, double-digit at least, uh, if not in the 30-40% range, everywhere. Kalpana Kocha, turning to your region, everybody is very aware that Asia is an export-driven region. Give us an idea of its dependence on exports and also how hard it's been hit by this slump in global trade. Yes, you're right. A- Asia is exceptionally integrated with the global economy, both on the trade side and also on finance. But more important than its than its integration is the nature of Asia's product mix, export product mix. Uh, many countries in Asia specialize in high-value-added uh, technology um, products, and these exports have been particularly hard hit. These are big-ticket items, motor vehicles, consumer electronics, capital machinery, and they also depend on finance uh, for purchases. So both of these uh, factors have made Asia very susceptible to this uh, to this downturn. In fact, between September 2008 and February 2009, exports fell at an annualized rate of 70% from this region, uh, emerging Asia. And that's much more than during the IT bust and much more than during the Asian crisis itself. The second element of, of the story in Asia is that it's a very tightly integrated supply chain. So you have Asian countries trading with each other, but they're all trading parts and components for for goods that are ultimately being shipped overseas. So when the final demand collapses overseas, you have this supply chain through which the shock is propagated, and that's why um, the another reason why the uh, region has been impacted hard. Paolo, turning to your region, I expect that the sub-Saharan African region has been hit by the double whammy of not only a trade slump, but also a drop in commodity prices. Yes, exactly. No doubt that the region, home for a number of commodity exporters, oil and non-oil exports, is feeling the impact of the global financial crisis. Demand for African exports has fallen. Commodity prices have declined. And global funding conditions for a number of countries have also tightened, making the situation worse in, in the region. Growth effects have been felt faster and stronger in oil exporting and other commodity exporters, but also in middle-income countries. In Zambia, to give one example, the plunge in copper prices has helped reduce growth already. 
to give a figure, we expect that exports of goods and services in 2009 will decline by some 9 percentage points to about 32% of GDP, which is a significant impact that the region has not had to endure for some time now. Kapan, for a lay audience, could you draw us a picture of the connection between financial shocks, global demand to how does a worker in a factory in Asia lose his job? How is this all connected? Okay. The account I'm going to give you is going to be a little bit stylized and simplified, but, but I think all <coughs> the important details will, will, will be there for the story. So let's start with what happened in the U.S. and Western and some Western European countries. Banks extended a lot of credit. Um, homeowners borrowed large amounts uh, for, of money to buy their homes and in the first, on, the, on the expectation that home prices would keep going up. In the first few years, that did happen. Um, homeowners um, then use the equity in their homes to to buy, uh, you know, to consume, to buy cars, to buy other products. Uh, builders started to build more homes and so on, borrowing money. Now, this all came to an end when home prices stopped rising, and actually, uh, a few a little while later, then started falling. Homeowners who had been borrowing against their homes couldn't consume as much. Um, many of them couldn't even, you know, keep making their mortgage payments. And banks started making losses and had to pull pull their, you know, ins- rather than making loans and credit, actually had to pull back uh, their money to cover these losses. What does it all mean for workers in Asia? Um, homeowners were buying, as I said, fewer cars, computers, um, and, and, and even cutting back on, on shopping for clothes, etc. And And banks in the advanced world were pulling back their credit. Together, this is this process which some your your listeners might hear um, being described as deleveraging, uh, the process of reducing debt. Um, that's a double whammy: lower demand for exports as well as lower financing. And you know, suddenly the the uh, manufacturer in Asia realizes he doesn't need to produce as much; he doesn't need so many workers. And the worker in, say, southern China uh, loses his or her job. That's the way the shock is propagated. Tom, let me just turn to another aspect of trade and, and, your, and uh, something that you've been working on in recent months, trade finance. According to some estimates, between 70 and 90 percent of trade is dependent on, on credit. But this has, sh- you, might, you don't look as if you agree with the statistic, but you correct me if um, you, you disagree. But um, it's known that trade finance is a very important aspect of trade, but it's now become more costly and less accessible. Why is that? Um, well, the, the main uh, reason that uh, trade finance has become more costly was uh, just explained by Kalpana, that's the deleveraging process. Banks providing trade finance have had to um, increase pricing margins on all of their products. Trade finance is one of them uh, in, for banks in emerging markets, particularly for corporates in emerging markets. There's a, a general... Uh, shortfall or potential shortage of working capital of which trade finance is only a part. Oddly enough, um, even though trade finance price, bank trade finance pricing has increased uh, quite dramatically in the last several months, uh, trade finance has actually dropped by less than global trade pretty much throughout the world. What seems to be going on, and this is an area where data are particularly bad, is that there's just a a very widespread increase in risk aversion by corporations, by uh, banks, by all other participants in the system, and that companies that 
did not previously make use of bank trade finance who would, for example, just uh, ask their uh, – the importers on the other side of the transaction to, you know, pay in 90 days are getting worried and are looking for guarantees from export credit agencies or letters of credit from banks. So even though pricing has increased quite dramatically, uh, demand, well, the amount of trade finance out there is actually holding up surprisingly well um, because of this general risk aversion uh, by importers, exporters, and banks. Paolo, you've actually, if I'm correct, you've made a recent visit to the African continent and you actually saw this at first hand. Can you give me some idea of this impact on the ground? Yeah, that, that is correct. We have visited recently four African countries, Sub-Saharan Africa, Nigeria, Kenya, and Ghana. We have spoken to importers and traders in all countries. And a common theme is that trade finance conditions have become less favorable in, in all countries. In some countries more than others, of course, but there is a common theme that trade financing conditions have become less favorable, although we have not seen disruptions of trades because of uh, tighter trade, con- uh, trade finance conditions. Some uh, trade is now taking place through well-established banks instead of through smaller banks. We have seen cost increases. We have also seen the requirements for larger or more collateral. In Nigeria, for instance, we see a requirement for cash collateralized letters of credit, which in the past had been used. Uh, they, are, they have become more prevalent now after the, the crisis. Um, so certainly there is a common complaint that financing of trade has become more costly and, 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 and less favorable than before. Just changing text slightly, Kalpana, before the economic crisis, we heard a lot of talk about Asia supposedly decoupling from the business cycle of developed countries. But in actual fact, what this global economic downturn has shown is the very opposite. Isn't, isn't that the case? That, that That's actually correct. Now, Asia is characterized by a very important phenomenon, and this has been going on for about a decade or so. Intra-regional trade, trade within Asia, has grown very sharply. And the fact, this fact that Asian economies are trading much more with each other led some people to state that Asia could decouple from the business cycle of uh, advanced economies. In reality, though, as I said before, a large part of the trade within the region is is intra-industry processing. It's a vertical supply chain. And uh, virtually all of the growth in intra-country in, intra trade in, in Asia has, has been of that nature. And so... Once the shock hit, as I said, you know, all countries that were part of that supply chain were, were uh, equally badly hit. Um, so the interregional trade not only didn't imply decoupling, but actually served to propagate the shock through the region. Tom Dorsey, against the background of this slumping global trade, there's been a lot of warnings about um, increased trade protectionism. We've had scare stories about uh, China banning Belgium chocolate or India forbidding toys from mainland China. How worried should we be about trade protectionism? Well, we should be worried about trade protectionism, but we should also be careful not to overstate uh, what's happened so far. Anytime that there's contraction in economies, protectionist pressures rise, and we've certainly seen that this time around. Thus far, uh, while there's been 
a lot of proposals for protectionist measures being debated in in newspapers and parliaments and so on. There's been, again, thus far, relatively little in terms of actual protectionist policies. Um, In particular, those policies under the direct control of the government. There has been a rise in anti-dumping cases, but anti-dumping cases in most countries are largely outside the control of the government. It's a quasi-judicial process where affected industries can bring a complaint, and while many of these complaints have been filed and there's an increasing number of anti-dumping cases opened, the opening of a case does not in itself result in a protectionist measure. And, you know, six, nine months from now when these cases conclude, we may find that uh, they didn't meet the tests under national laws for getting protection through anti-dumping. Kalpana, you, you look as if you agree very strongly with that, which is quite different from a lot of what we hear from other international organizations who are much more worried about the threat of protectionism. I, I No, I do agree with Tom. There's a lot of rhetoric. It plays well in domestic audiences, as you can imagine. Um, but I think there is a fundamental belief in, in many of the large uh, countries that are important in the trading in the global trading system that this is in nobody's interest so so we really haven't seen uh, other than the rhetoric uh, any any major uh, measures imposed Paolo, let me turn back to you. At the end of last November's G20 summit, the members pledged to reach a framework deal on the Doha round by the end of this year. Now, we haven't seen any follow-up on this as yet, but what would the Doha deal mean to a region like Sub-Saharan Africa? Would it make a great deal of difference? Yes, we think completion of the Doha round is in Africa's interest and should continue to be pursued. We see two areas where it would help African countries significantly. One is it would increase market access for African exports, and it should create a positive environment for trade reform in home, the, the domestic, on the domestic front as well. We see also that the African cotton sector would benefit significantly. Cotton is a key crop export of West African and Central African countries. There are four African countries, Benin, Burkina Faso, Chad, and Mali, which launched a cotton initiative. Uh, some time ago, and their aim is to achieve comprehensive liberalization, covering subsidies and market access, which would be in the interest of those countries. So we do think it would be significant and important for African countries in general. Kalpana, I'd like to round this up now and look ahead. Your region recently issued an outlook for future prospects, and while the road ahead was pretty grim, there were signs of hope on the horizon. Could you give us an outlook for the future? So I I should begin by saying that Asia should not and cannot turn away from globalization. This is a force that has brought very significant increases in living standards in this region over the past half century. But that said, there's a real question about whether this model that they've used uh, for development, which is almost exclusively dependent on exports, can be sustained. You may sometimes hear people saying that, you know, Asia is flying on one engine, and clearly that's not something that is is very safe to do for a long period of time. I think this crisis has shown that Asian economies need to look more at their domestic, uh, generating domestic demand for, for, for growth. Uh, the American consumer may never return to the levels of spending that he 
or she has undertaken in the in the past. So Asia needs to rebalance away from exports and towards domestic growth. China, for example, needs to focus on catalyzing private consumption. India needs to sustain private and public invest investment. Uh, countries need to, you know, strengthen their social safety nets so that people don't have to save as much for their own old age and or when they're sick. So my own view of the future in a- of Asian trade is actually bright, but primarily if Asian countries build up sources of domestic demand so that they can begin to trade with each other uh, in a way that doesn't necessarily depend on demand from the so-called uh, G2, the U.S. and Europe. Um, let's not forget that 40% of the uh, of um, the world's population lives in two countries in Asia, in India and China. There's a very large potential consumption base there. And so the future for Asia, trade in Asia can be as bright as before, but with different trading partners. So not an unoptimistic outlook for Asia. What about you, Paolo? What's your region look like for the future? Well, I think we need to distinguish between the short term and the medium term prospects. In the very short term, um, unfortunately, we see that economic growth is projected to slow down quite significantly by about four percentage points to about 1.5% this year before um, the region is able to stage a slight recovery in 2010, which would still leave the region below its pre-crisis level. Um, We see also that the fiscal and external situation of most countries in the area will be hit by the decline in both uh, commodity prices and exports. Uh, The fiscal situation for some of these countries will be a difficult one in the short term. But overall, in the, over the medium term, we see the region eventually rebounding. Uh, and as conditions in the global economy improve, we can see that the same catch-up that was happening before the crisis will happen over the medium term. Thank you, Paolo. Tom, I'd like you to bring it back home now. How are the policies that are being supported by the IMF going to aid recovery and, by extension, promote trade? In several different ways. Uh, First, uh, the IMF, the managing director in particular, has been quite uh, outspoken on the need for fiscal stimulus in those countries that have the capacity to um, basically expand their spending uh, or uh, social welfare programs, um, primarily but not exclusively in the industrialized countries. Uh, The fund is also a very strong proponent of liberalizing trade, including uh, completing the Doha round. Uh, It's still a work in progress, but some estimates based on the current negotiating texts put the world real income gain from the Doha round as it stands right now, if it were to be implemented, at something on the order of $150 billion a year. So you can think of that as an additional sort of stimulus. Um, and lastly, what people think most about the IMF uh, is in those countries uh, heavily concentrated in emerging markets where they don't have the domestic resources uh, to support their economies through this downturn. Um, we have uh, the IMF's lending facilities, which have uh, increased commitments from, I think, something like uh, $2 billion uh around the end of October to well above $100 billion now for our quota-based lending programs, our main lending facilities. 
Thank you, Tom. And that's all we have time for. I'd like to thank the contributors, Tom Dorsey of the IMF Strategy, Policy and Review Department, Kalpana Kocha of the Fund's Asia-Pacific Department, and Paolo Drummond of the Africa Department. I'm Hyunsung Kang. Join me again next time for our regular look at the global economic crisis with experts from the International Monetary Fund. Thank you.